421. 421 is brought to you by Crush Media Co., a marketing and communications agency that helps brands maximize their social content production, publishing, and engagement practices. Crush is where brand content and social strategy meet. Go to crushmediaco.com for more information. Welcome to 421. I'm George Faulkner. Um, On the show today, I've got Lee Feldman. Lee is a New York City-based singer, songwriter, composer. He's a working musician, uh, and he's been here in the city for a long time. We stopped by a WeWork location in Manhattan. Not sonically the greatest space to be recording a conversation, but it was great. The whole idea of 421 is to focus on kind of the creative spirit and the creative approach. What's interesting about this particular conversation is I came to the realization during the conversation that I've never interviewed anybody that wasn't a rock and roll musician or producer or etc. And um, Lee's background, Lee's story... Lee's approach to creativity, very different from a lot of the rock guys I've talked to. So um, I hope you dig it. I hope you get something from it. And um, we'll sprinkle a little bit of Lee's music uh, throughout the show here. So welcome to episode one. Thanks so much for tuning in. Here we go. Welcome to 421. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for thanks for doing this, Lee. Uh, George, it's totally my pleasure. Awesome. Known you a long time, and um, I'm happy to be a part of this. Okay, so this is a show about kind of the creative spirit, mm-hmm. and I do want to go back to the beginning uh, because with a lot of people that I've talked to in the past especially people in the music industry, they were music fanatics as children. Is that true for you? Um, not exactly. I mean, I was a very geeky kid, took classical piano lessons, and very dutiful in that way. And, um, you know, I grew up uh, in the 60s, so I was, of course, influenced as a kid by my parents' record collections. They were into um, folk music, like the Weavers and that kind of stuff, and classical music. But then occasionally, and they weren't the hippest people, but occasionally a friend would bring in, for example, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, you know, in 1967, or Jefferson Airplane Takes Off. So, and and then... Uh, I would start listening to those albums, and it was that mix of stuff which really formed me as a kid. Um, um, and those occasional pop albums mixed with the classical stuff. Um, I didn't get into jazz until later, 
because um, they didn't have the stuff around. But I wouldn't say I was a music fanatic, but I became a piano player and that became my thing. That was just sort of, I was the piano player guy. Like the thing that you felt you were good at. The thing I and, felt I was good at. And it was like, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep doing this. It's yeah. the thing I felt I was good at. And it's also became a way of self-expression. It was the only time that I felt that I was fully being alive in a way. Uh, when I was playing and then it got into improvisation and uh, more into improvisation. But, you know, the whole vibe around my house was not great. And this was just a way to, you know, to, to do something which felt true to me and which I felt alive doing. Yeah. And, and the, um, you know, the Beatles always get mentioned, <laughs> you know, the when Beatles. I talk to people sort of, of, of our generation, um, but it wasn't the classic Ed Sullivan show. I want to be a rock and roll star. It, it wasn't, that wasn't for me. No, I was a little young. So I, but I do remember being in nursery school in 19, I guess it was 1963 and they started being on the radio and, and asking my dad, you know, is this the Beatles? Is this the Beatles? You know, you couldn't avoid it. And I also remember thinking that they invented the word. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, so you're, you're, you're taking lessons. Uh, it's, it's rooted in classical. Yes. At what point, could, it may have been then, may have been later. At what point did you uh, start to perform in front of people where maybe you had that switch flip that went, oh, I like this. I like playing for people. Um, you know, actually, that's always been a... Uh, I don't think I'm one of those uh, performers who is like... Hey, look at me. Yeah. And I've never been like that. So that's actually, for me, been a, a, a sore spot in a sense, ambivalence. I mean, I don't, I, um, I feel compelled to create stuff. Um, and it is a compulsion. There is an element of compulsion to it, for me, anyway. Um, it's almost like an addiction, but... Uh, the, the playing is more like an addiction. The creating is more like a compulsion. It's more like something's not right and I got to make it right. And if I do put this thing in this sequence, it'll feel all right and it'll make me feel better. So in that sense, it is somewhat like an addiction. There is something about that. But the performance aspect of it... Um, you know, it goes along with the creation because it's if a tree falls in a forest kind of thing, you know, is any, you know, and, and, um, you know, but I guess I did like performing in high school in rock bands. Yeah. I mean, because that was cool, you yeah. know, and, you know, and that aspect of it, I really did like, yeah. you know, the, the attention and, uh, you know, feeling like I was part of something that was cool. Yeah. Yeah. So on the compulsion side, right. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, common for musicians who spend a lifetime 
being musicians, like if they don't have that element, it can be devastating. Yes. Um, around what time did you sit down at the piano and start making things up? I think that was, to the, my best of my recollection, that was probably around the time I was 13 or so. Yep. 13 or 14 um, is when things really, when I started making that kind of connection to music and having that and, and thinking to myself, this is what I, I think I'm going to be when I grow up, you know? So yeah, I would say about 13, 14. And, and, and did you have someone in your life, a teacher or another, an older kid in school, you know, was there someone that helped you to make that jump a Not little bit really. and who, who came to you and was like, Whoa, you know, this, this is working. Like you've got something going on here. Um, not at that age. I mean, uh, when I was in, got into high school, well, I guess it was around that age. You know, I think Carl Stroman, who was the jazz band leader at Mamaroneck High School, where you and I both went, was uh, incredibly supportive and, you know, opened my eyes that an adult, you know, he's a writer as well, and he wrote uh, many really excellent uh, charts for high school kids and not only for high school kids, but you know, that was a big sense of support that, that, you know, this guy is really supporting me. And, um, um, he also engineered me to be able to play Rhapsody in blue with a high school orchestra, which was a big thing. But the adult world, I don't think I had that kind of creative, support from the adult world until later on, you know, in college, you know, it was just, I was in a band and we were doing stuff and it felt great. And then I was doing stuff on my own and that felt necessary. Yeah. It was it Carl that brought jazz into your life or had you already started dabbling in that? Um, it might have been Carl Stroman that brought jazz into my life, and probably also your brother, Andy <laughs> Faulkner, who at the time was my one of my best friends. Um, and you know, he, you know, you talk about a music f- fanatic, somebody who's really—I would put him in a category of somebody more than me, who's actually really a cons- an avid consumer of music, and really teaching me stuff i would get into stuff which was necessary for me at the time but there were kind of all sorts of gaps in my own you know so i don't consider myself as much of a uh music fan as other people who i really look to to help me and fill in many gaps in my knowledge yeah but then at the same time at a at around at an early age and around the age of 14 I had this real th- thing about finding my own voice mm-hmm. finding my own way of expressing myself which was I was trying to figure out whether it's through improvisation or songwriting or you know getting a sound on the piano that kind of thing you know just really you know a driving force Ba 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 
so I know uh, that you just reformed the high school band. Yes. Uh, I assume you just you guys are just having a great time. And tell me a little bit about what what that experience was like then. Right. And what the heck happens when you pull that back together after after two years? Yeah, and everybody in the group has probably matured yes. uh, tremendously, yes. both you know artistically and um, yes. Well, I mean, it's incre- It's very unusual and remarkable that four kids who played together. I was fourteen, fifteen. They were a little bit older, but that four kids. 42 years later would all be musicians. Yeah. That's that's an unusual situation and out of the four of us Paul Adamy who is the bass player um, is a tremendously successful bass player in New York. He was in he was the bassist for Mamma Mia for 14 years and now he's the bassist for Kinky Boots and he's played with innumerable people. And he's a consummate professional and a wonderful guy. Yeah. Um, Bob Winbeal um, is the guitarist, uh, and he also has, like me, n- never wavered from being uh, having music uh, be a defining force in his life. We both of us. Paul has made a living as a bass player consistently. Bob and I, wobbly on that. And then Mark McSood, the drummer, does perform still and gigs um, and, you know, plays beautifully. So how that worked was Bob was really the driving force and he decided that we weren't going to just go back and play our old repertoire, but that we were going to do what we're doing now. And Bob and I are the main writers that we, he's a composer, I'm a composer. So he wrote about four or five tunes. I wrote about four or five tunes and then we did a few covers. We got together, we rehearsed and then we went into a studio, recorded, and then we did a gig and it was really, it was touching and great and it was a very very cold night in larchmont which is where we (laughs) went to high school and um and the place was packed partially from nostalgia and curiosity um and um you know i think it really uh was more than a nostalgic thing partially because of the way bob designed it to specifically not be that to be, well, we're going to, you know, this is where we are now. Although we did some tunes which harkened back to those years, even though we didn't play those tunes in our repertoire. For example, Traffic's Glad, you know, um, that definitely was of that era. I think it was recorded in 71 or whatever, even so a little bit before when Edge was, that's the name of the band, by the way, Edge. Yes. <laughs> Which I believe was named after, I believe I came up with that name after the shaving cream <laughs> came out earlier, which was a gel, uh-huh. which I guess it still is. Yeah. It still is a product. It is. But um, I believe I came up with that name, Edge. I, and I, it's, of course, be, before the Edge uh, of U2. <laughs> so. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the three to four letter you know, group names, oh. right? And when you go back and you read up on the who, uh, you know, you you find out that basically 
the uh, the the machine that was uh, behind the band at the time yeah. uh, wanted a name that could be seen from across the street on a poster. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so you guys didn't have like the high school hit. <laughs> the the edge of the day didn't have that one song that your friends were all like love that song no to and bring we, back we were mostly at that time we were mostly a cover band yeah. too and you know we were this was in the 70s in the suburbs and we were all music um so you know at the time either people were getting into new wave and punk um, or they were getting into jazz rock, yeah, like Chick Corea and Mahavishnu Orchestra, and we were of the latter type. Yeah, yeah. I remember thinking, uh, listening to like the Stranglers or whatever, the Dictators, and thinking, this is sh- this is crap. Didn't man. connect with this you. is crap. Yeah. Although l- later really appreciated it, but yeah. at the time I was totally yep. a really. Um, very snobby about that yeah and you know well this is you know these guys can't play that kind of thing and you know i've i've really come around you know really lo- loved like the voidoids now but at the time i would not yeah. have appreciated that yeah yeah um, which is understandable based on you know everything you had learned leading up to that point i mean you had right. a, you had a deeper understanding for composition and performance and yeah, and these guys were coming from, um, you know, when I joined the band, I was a little younger than them, and they were really into, like, blues and Allman Brothers and Jeff Beck, and that, I so I was really sort of checking that stuff out deeply for the first time, and then we all simultaneously got into jazz, jazz rock, and uh, fusion, <laughs> which is making a comeback. Yeah. the moment when you decided that you wanted to be um, a creator as a profession? Well, I mean, I went to college as a composition major at Indiana University, which is a really good music school. And when I was there, and you know, so that was my intention of becoming a composer. Um, although I was also at the same time doing free improvisation. I was in the jazz band, but at the time I wasn't, it felt too restrictive to me. There was these Midwestern kids studying 251 patterns and licks and stuff like that. And that to me just was not where I was at. So I started hanging with people who were doing completely free improvisation. And so on the one hand, I was doing um, 
composition and writing for chamber music stuff and trying to find my own voice that way. And then at the same time doing this free improvisation with um, this guy named Paul Ray and Julian Thayer. And that was really exciting. Um, And then I was also starting to write songs at that time too. And, you know, it became, I graduated from college in 1981. The next few years were uh, after I graduated, trying to put these different strands together. And I still feel like I'm trying to put those things together. Like on the one hand, composition. On the other hand, this kind of freedom of improvisation. improvisation, And then songwriting, some kind of way of having a concision and something which is works together to make a short, great statement. You know, Bob has stayed within that world. He has a band called Outlet, also goes back for 30 years, and that comes out of a more free improvisation thing. I haven't really stayed with that world as much. Um, But for people who are free improvisers, it's it's, um, you know, it's something of developing a language and... um, I, I don't know if it's easy. I think for any of the really good ones, they would say it's both easy and hard because, you know, you want to stay away from cliches. You know, you're, you're self-aware of when you're falling into this or that. Um, so I think the really great players in that, um, you know, try to find that balance between freedom and you know, looking in on yourself and, and steering yourself in the right direction. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so most of what you have, uh, released commercially, um, is in the structured song uh, space. What made you decide that that was what you wanted to be doing, uh, when you first, started releasing right so i think um part of the reason i went in that direction was sort of out of misery in a sense um (laughs) you know i mean i was doing these more abstract compositions and i think i had this feeling of wanting to express myself in a very uh direct way even though my songs maybe are not so direct um, they're oblique and the lyrics can be oblique, but at the same time, I felt a real need to, um, to express myself through a song, through something which wasn't as abstract as a composition. And, um, I started doing that, um, in like, I think really seriously doing that in like about 83 and by, around 87 had had enough or 86 really I had enough material built up that I put on a show called Invitation at Washington Square Church which was actually a mixture of many things it was a theatrical uh, there was a theatrical element as well and then um I kept on writing these songs and then in 87 I think Roger Peltzman heard me perform at a show and I played Carolyn which was a song which ended up being on my first album and he was becoming a producer and and then it took us seven years from that but um, all through the, the late 
uh, 80s and early 90s, I was playing with two friends, um, my friend John Drescher and Paul Speaks, neither of which were professional musicians. Um, uh, uh, and we were doing totally free, crazy shit in my apartment in Williamsburg. I moved to Williamsburg early, you know, in 87 or anyway. So it was desolate at that time. And we were just playing, I mean, you know, one piece could be us just taking, looking up at the wall at a picture of Little Richard, and that would be a piece, you know, or us just sort of screaming or whatever. So I was writing songs and at the same time doing this, we called it The Bunker, Just Whatever Goes. And, um, but we were also, you know, questing and trying what, you know, to push the boundaries of what a song could be or what a piece could be and experimenting. It was an experimental kind of thing. Um, and, and at the same time, I was writing songs. And when I had enough songs, Roger came to me and said he wanted to make an album with me is when Living It All Wrong started coming, you know, came together. Yeah. And that was around 94. Yeah. And, and at that time, you know, so, so these elements of just, you know, improvisation, experimentalism, songwriting, you know, um, and I liked the idea of something crystallizing like into a pop song, even though my music, I wouldn't, I feel uncomfortable characterizing it as pop songs. They're yeah. kind of art songs in a way, but you know, the idea of having something that, you know, is three or four minutes in length that in, in way you can put in your pocket and carry around with you. And it's repeatable. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I love that idea. Yeah. You know, um, with Roger, uh, what are some of the things brought to the process that maybe were unexpected or just incredibly welcome that that made you just go, wow, I hadn't really been thinking this way. Like when you started working with producers, did things start to gel in ways you hadn't Absolutely. I mean, yeah, Roger um, had a real um, faith in my aesthetic. And at the same time, had a very strong aesthetic sense of his own, which did not conform with whatever was going on. He was more like, what you're doing is great, and we got to make a great album. And he had very, very strong aesthetic tastes, uh, as, as do I, of like, this is great. This is great. And, and so what really was so wonderful was to work with somebody who is really tuned into what I'm doing, has very strong aesthetic tastes of his own, um, and wants to just bring out the core of what these songs are without having really any other agenda other than to make a great album. Yeah. And that was it. And, and we were, we, we, we were not, um, trying to make a hit. We weren't trying to do anything. You know, we were just trying to make a great album. We weren't signed to any label. I was working as a word processor. For those of those who don't know who are listening, those are the days before uh, PCs when they actually would have in law firms people coming in and typing the lawyer's documents. And, and that was actually quite a lucrative 
profession yeah. back in the I was that's how I made my living. I was doing it temp work and I was making quite good money at the time and enough, you know, I was making $26 an hour in 1986 and in the 80s and that financed living it all wrong. Uh, which was expensive. It was an expensive album. I mean, it cost, you know, we had to go to recording studios. This was before the days that people had their own equipment. We had to go to recording studios. We went to really good recording studios. It cost about $25,000 to make that album, yeah. which was totally financed myself. And, you know, and then we shopped it. Roger decided to become my de facto manager and shopped it to 60 labels, all of who turned us down until we went to Pure Records, which Chris Luongo, who you know, was working for, and he was about to throw it away when he looked at the back cover, which we, which was a picture of me, and he something about it said he wanted to listen to it, and he listened to it and fell in love with it and convinced his boss, Arma Anden, to sign me. Wow. And that's how that happened. And then um, it was released on Pure Records. It was distributed by Mercury, um, Mercury came and heard me, said, uh, you know, uh, we don't get this guy at all. Um, <laughs> and we don't want to sign him. And then uh, the album was put out on Pure in 94. And then in 97, Roger had gotten s so many reviews. He, he had in his mind that he wanted to get 35 reviews. And international reviews from places like Atlantic Monthly and New York Times. I mean, real reviews. And when he got these 35 reviews, he went back to Mercury. And he said, here, this is, you You, you know, you can sign this guy. Yeah. You have an option on, on his contract. And uh, they brought these reviews to Danny Goldberg, and who was the head of Mercury. And Danny said, how much would it cost? And the option was, I think it was $75,000 to sign me. And he said, yeah, you know, let's do it. You know, yeah. uh, you know it's not that, at that time, it wasn't that much money. These, this was a major label, which is, for those of you who are listening who don't know what major labels are, this was something that they had <laughs> back in the 90s. And uh, it was a very exciting moment for me and Roger to actually make it to a major label. That was, you know, definitely a highlight in my life. Yeah. And, and to see, not only that, but we actually sat at a conference room table in Worldwide Plaza. And we were there with the woman who came to Sidewalk Cafe to hear me and said, I don't get this guy. Mm. And the first thing she said was, um, well, you're here through no help of, from me. Yeah, you you made it here on your own, and congratulations! And she was very gracious, and yeah. uh, wow. So yeah. What's, what's um, interesting to me is knowing that Roger uh, Peltzman comes from a classical background. 
as well. He comes from a classical background, and he's an intense Beatle maniac. Interesting. Um, from us, from a George Martin point of view. Yeah. Um, from the point of view of when he was a kid. I was listening to the Beatles records and loving them, but he was actually listening to the production and what choices were made and what George Martin did. And, you know, so he from, um, had similarly to me has this background of classical and pop and also Beatles in particular. Um, just this really ingrained sense of that if these different elements are put together in this way you can make something which is just so fucking great yeah well Um, which which i think leads to man in the jupiter hat which you know when i first heard it um i thought my god this is sonically brilliant outside of how great the songs are right. and the performances right but just there is some serious magic going on right. in that record yes yes so I, you I, guys must have i mean and and for a sophomore effort right to have that kind of depth and and impact it's, it's really impressive yeah well i mean it's a mixture of that um you know i've always gotten really support from stereophile magazine in particular as an audiophiles and it isn't what it comes from i think isn't a, a matter of it, it's a combination of a bunch of things one is the idea you know the whole thing of you can't polish a turd is really true you know sure. it's like when george martin and not to put myself to compare myself with the beatles although i do in my my head unfavorably all the time but you know, when George Martin would listen to a Beatles song, he would they would come and play a song for him, and he would listen. And some of them he would say, no, that's not there. And, and the ones that were there are there. And so you have to have something which is there right away. Yeah. That's the first thing. The second thing is the arrangement. You know, the arrangement has to perfectly complement that thing. The third thing is the recording. It has to be recorded really well. Um, and what that means is the musicians have to be really good musicians. So if you have a really solid material and it's arranged really well and you get really great musicians to play them and it's recorded really, really well and then at every step of the way you don't fuck it up. (laughs) <laughs> I hope I, I hope I'm sorry for the language, but, yeah, but if every you know that's what it becomes is at every step of the way, you know, then you get the recording, the take. It's great. Then you have to make the decisions of you know comping together a vocal, and those are all decisions. And it's a million decisions. It's the same thing as movies. It's every step of the way. It's decision after decision. Do I want this or do I want this? And it, that comes down to taste. Yeah. Ultimately, it's taste is like, you know, with the Beatles, George Martin said, you know, he knew sometimes it was a little out of tune, but, but you know, that was, it, it worked. Right. And so it comes down to, you know, that, you know, at every step of the way, shepherding the thing towards um, and making decisions, you know, can we make it a little bit more like this? Can we tweak this just a little bit more and really being on it and not giving up until the final thing which is the mastering which we master with greg calby who is you know the greatest um mastering engineer and it's even at those things they're excruciating you know can you just 
split the difference at, you know and at one point he's like i can't split the difference we're down to now a tenth of a decibel and the machine actually won't even go yeah. that's you know yeah. but you know it's that kind of obsession mm-hmm. with trying to follow the 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 thing to the end that makes for something which in the end is you know a, a great sonically yeah. so it isn't really like you're trying to make something great sonically it's like you're trying to make something great yeah and um if you do all these things you know hopefully you can't it, it turns out that you know something really and you know this was also before the days of you know the compression wars too mm, right um you know so you the know the tracks had the tracks were breathing because you didn't yes. have that ridiculous concern about battling against every other recording that was coming out. You guys are just making a great record. Right. That um, for some of your albums, you would bring in some strings, you would bring in some, you know, uh, folks playing, you know, some unexpected um, elements. Clearly, this was not fully rehearsed, you know. Which camp are you in, right? There are people who feel that endless rehearsals are the only way to go. And then there are those who say, you know what, we've got the foundation built you know, let's just bring in incredibly right. talented people to lay so on top in, of this. So in all four of my records, the core trio was piano, bass, and drums was a unit um, before we went into the studio. Yeah. And that was really worked out and felt like a real group. Yep. Um, th- we worked at, you know, the, there were, there were arrangements within that too, especially, you know, everybody piano arrangement, you know, the piano is where the piano is, what the piano is doing, what the bass is doing, what the drums are doing. But by the time you go into the studio, that is really solid. Mm-hmm. Um, the other stuff, bringing in other musicians and we brought in for Man in a Jupiter Hat, we brought in the Blues Brothers horns, sorry, you know, Lenny Pickett was, you know, there and, and Tom Bones Malone and, you know, um, you have, first you record the basic trio and you get those tracks down and then comes writing the arrangements, which I did, um, and bringing in, since you're in New York, you bring in the best players, you know, and you have three hours and they have to get this chart and that's a very harrowing you know experience and telling Lenny Pickett uh can you take it up an octave or let's do it again to a you know a group of string a string quartet of some of the you know most demanding critical players in New York is a very harrowing experience um so that's you know the the overdubs once you get the live tracks that's, you know, you have your core. And like we were talking about before about, you know, shepherding things through the process. 
you know, you got to get that. Once you get that down, then it's a matter of getting writing the arrangements correctly and then bringing in the players and getting really good sessions uh, out of those players. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, so in my case, there is a core band and then it's overlaid with studio musicians. Yeah. So you're a composer, songwriter, performer. You're also a teacher. Right. What comes top of mind when you think about people who have taught you post-Carl? And they don't necessarily have to be teachers. Um, and what are some of the things that you apply when you teach, right? Whether this is a, a, great question. a piano student or whether this is in the elder music program that you've got right, going on. Right, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I'm not sure what great teachers do is um and it's been said i think one of my favorite uh kind of classical composers 20th century is morton feldman who's no no relation to me and he had a friendship with john cage early on and he said what john cage did for him was gave him a green light and i think what the really great teachers do is give people a green light and to be f totally honest, I am not sure I'm one of those teachers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I um, I should I should remind myself of that more often. Um, you know, it's a it's a tough thing because I'm a piano teacher, so you want to you know you have demands. You want the kid to have technical facility. And I teach mostly young kids, and so you know, part of it is just you know you getting them to practice yeah. and you know, but at the same time, and I had a kid who recently stopped, decided to stop taking lessons because he's has so many things going on. He's a teenager and he's plays recorder and he sings and he's in the New York Philharmonic young composers program. And he, and he would come to me and I would say, well, you know, the music is this. And he's like, I want to kind of do it this way. And I did not have it in me to say, no, do it this way. It's like, dude, you should be doing it. You know, if you have this impulse, if you're 14 or whatever, and you're really wanting, and I had a long talk with the mom, and we decided, you know, piano lessons for this kid is not necessarily the right thing at this time. He's got so many other things. He's already psyched to be making music. Why put him in a straitjacket or why add another burden? You know, kids are very burdened these days, you know, yeah. with their homework and the amount of stuff. So it's a balance between... You know, uh, for for creative kids, um, and that's what you we're talking about here. Some kids are not those kids. They want to do well. They want to learn. But for some creative kids, the real thing is, you know, you know, uh, giving them what they need and staying out of their way. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I think that in my life. There have been moments where I have been trying to create to please others and have created things that I personally was not as connected with as I should have been. Right. And it's funny because when I think back on sort of the biggest groups that I had, one was created to sort of fit into a specific genre that wasn't in my heart, and that band got signed. One was doing everything from the heart, and that's the band everybody remembers. 
One band was a complete joke and was just for fun. And that's the band that sold the most. It's the craziest thing, you know, and you can, you can sort of go back and go, well, you know, why didn't you figure that out earlier? I don't know. I didn't. Right. But it's, it's um, allowing people to be themselves, allowing them the green light, I think is fantastic well, advice. I mean, one thing is, you know, you, you touched on a little bit is the commercial aspect of music and music making and creativity. And that's something that is at the forefront of every person's mind because people have to make a living. And, you know, the, the um, balance between making art and making money is something which is, you know, a lifelong struggle for most people. For some people, for very, very few, um, there's been this wonderful, incredible, and I think that happened mostly, you know, in the 60s and 70s, this kind mm-hmm. of, you know, these people, you know, whether it's Paul Simon or, or, or Dylan or, you know, where it's just, you know, they're making great art and making money. But for most of us, including me, it's, um, it's not that way. You know, you, you make art and you might get nice reviews, but it doesn't pay the bills. And so, you know, how do you make a living? That's one big question, which all of us ask. Um, And uh, then the other is, you know, how much do you want to um, try to make your art something which is going to make money versus, in my case, I'm not, I'm kind of compulsively, honest and i i feel almost unable to try to make money to i don't know if i could even um to to do something to make money i don't know if i could i i you know get it gets back to that kind of compulsiveness thing and there's self-expression thing so i think i'm sort of faded for better or for worse and i think it really is for better or for worse i mean for better in that i really am proud of the work that i've done um, for worse, and I wish I, I wish it made me more money, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, so, you know, that's the that's that's them's the breaks. Well, speaking of which, um, your albums include "Living It All Wrong," "Man in the Jupiter Hat," "I've Forgotten Everything." I need my glasses for the long one. Oh, it's album number four. Ah, uh, trying to put the things to together. Trying to put the things together. That never, never been, been together, together before. before. Yeah. Um, Sacred Time. Sacred uh, Time is an album of, uh, of Jewish music with piano and cello, not my own music. Mm. But, um, but that actually, uh, that's with Noah Hoffeld on cello, and uh, it's a beautiful record. Well, and I, I encourage everybody listening to go and check out Lee Feldman and these albums. I wanted to um, wrap up with uh, elder music. Yes. Tell me about elder music and what, what it has uh, given back to you. Okay, so, so as a teacher, I started, I teach at a Third Street Music School settlement, which is a, a, the oldest community music school in the United States. It started in 1870-something, I think. No, 1894, I guess. Um, but I also was teaching these older 
women in an assisted living facility on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I realized that there was nothing, no people who were bringing piano lessons to these people. And, you know, sort of a light went off in my head, like, you know, I should do this. I should be the guy who's bringing, you know, piano lessons because, um, you know, that demographic is growing. Um, All these studies show that uh, increasingly studies are showing that learning an instrument is important for longevity and mental acuity. And there are many, many great teachers out there uh, who want to do something meaningful. So I thought, I'm going to do this. And everybody I told about the idea said, this is a great idea. Yeah. And I thought, I'm going to do it. And so this, so I formed a business called Elder Music. And uh, we had a pilot program in Florida last summer, which was a really huge success. Um, Andy Kohlberg, who is another high school friend, is the president and CEO of uh, Kisco Senior Living. And they agreed to do it. And uh, next week, we're starting our first facility in Armonk, New York. Wow. Um, with group piano lessons. And um, so it's in, it was in Florida. Hopefully, it will continue in Florida. It'll be in New York starting next week. And nobody else is doing this in the United States. But um, I know it's a great idea. And it's something, you know... Being a creative person, you're doing a lot of stuff thinking about yourself a lot. And there's something which is very liberating to think about other people Mm. and doing something for other people. And that's something which I'm increasingly thinking about more as I get older. Is that I don't, you know, as much as I'm proud of the work that I've done and do, I get tired of thinking about me. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, you know, and so there's something cool about just, you know, doing something for other people. And, you know, so we'll see how it goes. But yeah. um, it's it's happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, um, what was the song uh, where you had the seniors singing right. back up? See was You Again. It's see called you, See You Again. So and that's was there on, something in, in that experience that kind of maybe influence the elder music idea you know, or I've always, planted a seed. I don't know. I've always sort of, in on that album too, there's a song called Mr. Feldman, which starts off with the main character who is Mr. Feldman as a young person. Then it jumps ahead 30 years to him in a nursing home looking for his glasses or whatever. So I've always found it kind of like, you know, I've always been sort of <laughs> uh, interested in older people. Um even if it's in a kind of humorous, joking way, but also kind of like morbid fascination. Yeah. Um, and then also going through putting my mom in a, or seeing my mom, I didn't have to put her, but seeing my mom in a nursing home too. You know, as you get older, you see your parents go through this stuff. Yeah. And that becomes just a reality. It's you know? a real game changer. It's a real game. You know, as those of us who are old enough know, yeah. that, that happens to us. And so... Um, that world, which is something which when you're younger, it's just like, oh man, those are old people. <laughs> right. You know, as you get older, you realize, well, yes, they are. And uh, <laughs> they actually exist. And uh, it just becomes a part of your reality, which was not a part before. Yeah. You know, and, um, and I kind of dig being around them. 
yeah. I, I kind of just dig being around them. You know, yeah. there, there's an honesty mm-hmm. and um, a net lack of bullshit, yeah. you know, that I find really kind of refreshing. I, I mean, um, I, think, I think for people lucky enough to uh, have the opportunity to know their own parents when they are right. elderly, um, it is that element of honesty that starts to really shine through. That right, is it's it's so fantastic. Now, there there are two things that that I want to end with. One is, is there anything that we didn't talk about that that maybe I have missed here? Something that was just no. I mean, the only thing that I would say is that. You know, it's an ongoing process, you know, I mean, I'm in my late 50s now and it's, you know, it's, it's as mysterious and compelling to me as it was when I started out and it changes, things change. Also, you know, you're, you know, what, how you, how you approach the creative process changes and it's hard to it's something you have to be aware of that you have to keep up with that. What might have worked for you when you were younger might not work as you get older and you have to figure things out, those things out um, continually. So cool. Yeah. Um, All right. The final question is um, what makes you think you're so smart? What makes me think I'm so smart? Well, I happen to have a a 13-year-old who is really smart. And the, the, um, uh, so on a, on a daily, on a multi-daily basis, I am reminded that I am not so smart. Excellent. Thanks, Lee. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Lee Feldman. And thank you for tuning in more episodes to come. I'm going to try to get one out every month. And, um, that's all I got to say. See you next time. Mm -hmm.